Okay. So, welcome everybody to the second Law, Theology and Culture Seminar, organized at the End of Law Project at Lund and University. So, my name is Morten Björk. I'm a researcher in theology at Lund University and Oxford University, and your host today, together with Trudvont Otteri Johansson, who is a legal scholar from Gothenburg, based in Gothenburg. Today we are honored and even more happy to have Jeff Love here. Jeff is a jurist, but today working as a research professor of German and Russian at Clemson University. And he's also a translator from a wide range of languages, such as German, French, and Portuguese in Russia. And he's based in Portugal also. And he's written a series of important works, such as his study on Tolstoy, the overcoming of history in war and peace, his introduction to the great Russian author, Tolstoy, a guide for the perplexed, and his books, book on Alexander Korshev, the Black Circle. He's also translated Korshev's atheism to English and Antonia Lobo Antunes, until stones become lighter than water. Portuguese author. And now he's working on a project on, Russian, on the Russian Christian philosopher Fedorov, Nikolai Fedorov, Fedorovich Fedorov, and on his view on immortality, which I'm personally very interested in due to my own interests. Uh, but today, uh, Jeff will talk about Alexander Koshev and the end of law. I think all of you have read the short introduction to the talk. So perhaps it's better to move on to Jeff and he will talk about one hour and then we will have around one hour for questions. So wait with the questions to after the talk. And when you wait and when you want to say something, just write your name in the chat and I and Tulmog will make sure that you can, yeah, that you can ask your question. Okay, thank you, Jeff. We are very thankful to have you here virtually at least and looking forward to hear your talk. And if you want to know something about the End of Law project, by the way, we have a site. I can put the link in the chat and you can check it out. And we will organize more seminars um, around the, the topic of an end or perfection of law. So thank you very much. Okay, yeah, over to you. Thank you. Thank you, Morten, for the introduction. Thank you very much for having me. Um, and uh, it is uh, delightful to meet you all if it is only virtually. Uh, I did actually look up the website, and uh, it's a it's a project that's uh, very interesting in terms of uh, Kozhev's own concerns, as I think uh, we'll see. Um, well, uh, I will uh, today. I'll, I want to give uh, something of an overview, if you like, of uh, Alexandra Kozhev. Uh, my talk is divided into three parts. The first biographical sketch. Um, he had a very interesting life as a very interesting person. So I think it's uh, a worthwhile uh, thing to give him a biographical sketch. That's a bit more than what Heidegger would insist that a thinker should give, should or should be given to a thinker. Um, I'll then uh, go into uh, very quickly, uh, probably a rather polemical view of his uh, most well-known work, uh, which is the introduction to the reading of Hegel, which was published in 1947. 
and then I will couple that with the discussion of a manuscript that was not published in his lifetime. Uh, in fact, he died in 1968 and the manuscript was published in uh, 1981 uh, on law. Uh, and I'm going to talk about, to some extent, the difference between those two works, the tension that one might be able to identify between the two works. Um, and then I will open things for questions. I, I apologize. Normally, I would not give a talk that is quite so long, and I shall try not to be uh, make it boring or tedious. But uh, I think there's a quite a, given the relative obscurity of Kozhev in internationally, I think it's uh, probably incumbent upon me to give a broader order, overview and to do a little bit more than might normally be the case. Uh, so there will be detail missing as well. Um, in any event, um, I'll just go to it now and um, I look forward to your questions or concerns at uh, when I'm finally done. All right, so the title of my talk, of course, is Between Kant and Hegel, Alexandre Kozhev and the End of Law. The title of my talk refers to a pervasive tension in Alexandre Kozhev's work. On the one hand, there is the Hegelian Kozhev, the famous and enigmatic lecturer who exercised enormous influence on French intellectual life in the inter and post-war periods, declaring the end of history and its expression in the universal and homogeneous state, the state akin to what was taking form in the Soviet Union under Stalin at the time. On the other hand, there's a remarkably Kantian Kozhev who puts the question as to whether history can ever come to an end and thus whether the universal and homogeneous state, a state no longer needing laws to address disputes or differences among its citizens, would ever be realizable or is, in his own words, not rather, and I quote, a limit case uh, because homogeneity is never in fact absolute, end of quote. Today I'll present these two sides of Kozhev's thought in the manner of an overview. I first present an account of the Hegelian Kozhev with reference to the lectures he gave in the 1930s that were published under the editorial guidance of Raymond Queneux. And I mentioned them as the, uh, in French, it's Introduction à la lecture de Hegel, and then they were published in 1947. I then present the more elusively Kantian Kozhev with reference to a large manuscript over 500 pages in the autograph copy on law that was, that's entitled uh, Outline of a Phenomenology of Law, or in French, Esquisse d'une Phénoménologie du Droit, uh, that was uh, written in 1943, but not published until 1981. I conclude with some speculative comments regarding the relation of the, uh, these two different aspects of Kozhev's thought. On, on the issue side, right? if you have anything more, let us know and we can have a look, right? This is like the most um, what was that? I, I muted that. There was someone who didn't have their microphone muted. Okay, sorry. Okay, pardon me. All right. So before proceeding to those texts, uh, let me give a short sketch of uh, uh, Kozhev's life and works. For Kozhev is neither, as you know, really well known outside of France, uh, nor is his uh, curious life devoid of interest for its own sake. Alexander Kozhev was born Alexander Vladimirovich Kozhevnikov in 1902, part of an affluent and talented uh, Moscow family. His uncle was the famous painter Vasily Kandinsky. At a time of immense artistic and intellectual vitality, the so-called Silver Age of Imperial Russian culture. 
The Silver Age was a particular period of philosophical and theological ferment brought about in large part by the pervasive influence of uh, Dostoevsky's genre-shattering novels and two of Imperial Russia's most influential thinkers, Vladimir Solovyov, whose dates are 1853 to 1900, the Russian Hegel, as they call him, and Nikolai Nikolaevich Fyodorov, Morton mentioned him. Uh, his dates are 1829 to uh, 1903. The list of significant thinkers who followed in their footsteps is long, contains some names still familiar outside Russia, primarily to specialists. Uh, you have Nikolai Berdyaev, Sergei Bulgakov, Pavel Florensky, Ivan Ilin, uh, Lev Karsavin, Dmitry Mirishkovsky, Vasily Rozanov, Lev Shistov, and uh, others. Bekhojev does not figure among them has to do with relative youth and the peculiar turn his life took after the revolution of 1917. Kozhev nonetheless shares much with them, especially his impressive erudition, for this was an age of polymaths, and a theologian like Florensky, to take but one example, uh, was also an accomplished uh, mathematician with multiple languages, as well as a dizzying array of scientific and cultural interests. Kozhev left Russia in the aftermath of 1917, he was imprisoned by the Bolsheviks, but managed to survive lingering in Russia until 1920, when he fled to Germany with a friend. Gorzhev established himself primarily in Berlin, though he attended university in Heidelberg as well. At Heidelberg, Gorzhev studied with the well-known neo-Kantian Heinrich Rikat, as well as Karl Jaspers. He also pursued extensive studies of ancient Greek philosophy, in addition to religions of the East, in particular Buddhism and Taoism, and Eastern languages, uh, primarily Chinese, Sanskrit, and Tibetan. Um, he could read all three, by the way, but he preferred Sanskrit. Um, he obtained his PhD in philosophy and oriental languages, Chinese and Tibetan, under Jaspers in 1926. His uh, dissertation, which was over 600 pages long, was entitled The Religious Philosophy of Vladimir Solovyov. Khrushchev moved to Paris in the same year with his wife, uh, and he continued his studies with an, invested, an intensive investigation of mathematics and quantum physics that led to his large work, it's a fascinating work, the idea of determinism in classical and modern physics, which he presented to the faculty of the Sorbonne, but it was never, uh, he never was given a degree for it. And I'm not quite, no one is really quite sure why not because uh, it was a treatise that uh, uh, people talked about at the time as, uh, as being very, very, very interesting. Um, Kozhev is famous for living quite extravagantly in the late 1920s. He had large holdings in the company of the, that makes the cheese, La Vache Kiri. Uh, but unfortunately, in 1929, he lost all his holdings, most of his money, uh, and was forced to cast about for other kinds of work. His friend, Alexander Coiré um, decided to help him out and to have him replace him for a year at the Ecole des Études in Paris on a, uh, to do a course on the religious thought of Hegel. Uh, Kozhev was only supposed to teach for one year, uh, but such was his popularity amongst a small but ardent group of students that he continued the seminar until 1939. A word about his students. His students are very Many of them are, were, became quite famous. Jacques Lacan was one. Uh, Maurice Merleau-Ponty was another. 
Henri Corbin was another. Um, Raymond Queneau, of course, was yet another. André Breton was another. Uh, Raymond Aron. It's a who's who of, uh, I guess, the interwar French intellectual uh, intellectuals. And he beguiled them. Uh, and they really became fascinated with him. And he had enormous success uh, with, uh, with this group. And it's one of the reasons why he is so influential in French intellectual life to this day is because his tentacles can be found uh, in, uh, in all those who are influenced by Lacan, uh, by those who are influenced by Althusser, even though Althusser looked out upon Kojève negatively, and even people like Derrida and Foucault who also responded negatively to his, uh, to his influence. Anyhow, um, after uh, the fall of France, Kojève fled to the south of France and to near Marseille. He wrote two important works. One is called On Authority from 1942. Uh, and the other work I mentioned, The Outline of a Phenomenology of Law, which he wrote in 1943. He joined the French resistance in 1944. Um, and there's rumors that he was, had been assisting Soviet intelligence at least since 1941. After the war, Kojève changed considerably. He was invited by a former student, Robert Marjolin, to join the Directorate of uh, for Foreign Economic Relations. And he soon became a very powerful figure in the French government as a significant and highly respected and feared bureaucrat. He worked closely with the future French Prime Minister uh, Raymond Barre, and leading functionaries like Olivier Wemser and Bernard Clapier. And uh, he is uh, considered to be somewhat of an eminence grise in the French economic policy of the 1950s and early 1960s. Uh, he was a specialist in trade policy and contributed uh, importantly to the formation of the European Economic Union. And he was a strong advocate for European economic integration. He is one of the fathers of the European Union. Uh, thus, it is so, sort of appropriate, if you like, if such a thing can ever be appropriate, that he, was, uh, he died literally while giving a speech to a delegation of the common market on June 4th, 1968. And uh, they have a recording of it. It's actually rather gruesome where you hear him stop in mid, in mid sentence and collapse. And, uh, um, Anyhow, um, during his years as a high government functionary, Kojève continued to write philosophical works, primarily in the Galian vein, producing several substantial texts, an introduction to the system of science from 1953 called the uh, Concept, Time and Discourse, in English, of course, uh, three volumes, and then he did a three volume, an enormous work of over 1300 pages called An Attempt at a Reasoned History of Pagan Philosophy of which he published only one volume in his lifetime in 1968. He also wrote a work in 1953 devoted to Kant, which is very, very interesting. Uh, and he uh, is well known in the United States, at least for his uh, um, debate with Leo Strauss in a book that's published called On Tyranny uh, about the Xenophon. Uh, he was, a, he was a, uh, a friend of Strauss's going back to the 1930s. And Strauss had enormous respect for him. Thus, if you take any survey of American or North American scholar, English language scholarship, the majority of scholars who work on Kojev are those are associated with uh, the school of Strauss, if you like. 
Um, he also corresponded with Carl Schmidt and gave a talk at Carl Schmidt's invitation in 1957. Uh, he famously uh, considered Carl Schmidt the only person of interest to talk to in Germany. He said this in a, uh, in a, in a an aside in, in the 1960s. Um, and uh, he's, uh, Jakob Taubes found him the most important uh, eschatological thinker of his time, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, put simply, uh, he had a very interesting life divided into two, into, into several different phases, as you can see, but two primarily different phases, a, a phase of teaching and a phase of bureaucratic action or action as a bureaucrat, a man of the world, so to speak. Uh, and his influence amongst people who knew him and, uh, and uh, amongst other important figures from whether you, as disparate as Jacques Lacan and Carl Schmitt is, is quite intriguing and significant. Uh, there's a correspondence with Schmitt that people go over and try to and analyze. There's a correspondence with Leo Strauss, of course, that's become uh, quite important to a lot of people. He corresponded briefly with a number of different individuals. And so he's a striking figure because he's he does have a good deal of influence. You have to really tease out the, the influence in various areas, especially in French thought. But because he influenced the generation of the 60s so much, he has had much broader influence than people might think. Uh, certainly since the French thinkers of, the, of say, people like Foucault, and Derrida, and Deleuze, Althusser have had such enormous influence in the Anglophone world, that Kojève is a, is a, a real presence, if a presence that is, uh, if you like, covert or hidden. So um, that's, his, that's his life, basically. Uh, and I just, before going into talking about the works more specifically, I should like to say that he only published two books in his lifetime. And the first book, the uh, introduction to the uh, reading of Hegel, was published in 47 by, uh, by Cunot, at the insistence of Cunot. And Kojève did not like the work and did not want to have it published but he uh, allowed Cunot uh, to go ahead because as he, as Kojev said, he did not want to take himself too seriously. And you can take that with however you wish to. Um, the second work, of course, the first volume of the attempt at a uh, recent history of uh, pagan philosophy was published in 68, uh, one of three volumes and, was just, and uh, it's a considerably less accessible work and said much less influence. That's all he published, really, outside occasional articles and a few comptes rendus. Uh, no other major works were published in his lifetime. He left a lot uh, unpublished, 26 boxes worth, actually. And they are now reside at the Bibliothèque Nationale in France. Um, a number of these works have been published. Um, there's another work that's of particular interest. Um, he, confide, he gave it to Georges George Bataille, who I should have mentioned was another of his most ardent students. Uh, and uh, he gave it to Bataille before fleeing for Southern France in 1941. It's an interesting work for people in my area because he wrote it in Russian. It's huge, 923 pages. Uh, and his handwriting is so difficult to read that it has taken a team, literally of seven people, five years just to transcribe it. And they're only on page 790 still. <laughs> so, uh, uh, and uh, it's considered this uh, a fast name uh, manuscript. He wrote, wrote it at white heat between 1940-41, apparently gave one copy to the Soviet embassy that they believe was burned as the Soviet embassy uh, 
uh, closed down after the in the Nazi just in anticipation or just before the Nazis took over Paris. Uh, and the other copy he gave to uh, Bataille, and they found it only in the late 90s. So it's interesting. Um, that's just another little note. Okay, sorry to go on about that. All right, so I shall begin my first discussion today on the my discussion of the Hegelian Kozhev by referring to what must be Kozhev's most striking single claim, namely that the highest form of emancipation is suicide. A claim made clearly in an unpublished Russian manuscript from 1931, entitled Atheism, it's published now in English translation and several others, and repeatedly in the uh, Hegel lectures. Uh, Kozhev polemically refers to, uh, or uh, a classic Kozhevian uh, statement is, human existence is mediated, a mediated suicide. Um, now this claim sounds so outrageous, so contrary to good sense, that many are tempted simply to dismiss Kozhev on that account, unless of course they are acolytes of Schopenhauer. And it's not all, at all clear to me that Schopenhauer has many acolytes outside of the artistic milieu where his thought once prospered. It is no accident that I mentioned Schopenhauer, however. Kozhev's thought reflects some of Schopenhauer's most basic doctrines, a point all the more interesting given Kozhev's status as a commentator on Hegel. But as we shall see, Kozhev's commentary contains many layers showing many influences and the affinity with Schopenhauer plays out against other important affinities as well. If Schopenhauer bids us to free ourselves from the will, Kozhev urges us to free ourselves from the most pernicious restriction on our freedom, the imperative to self-preservation a way to freedom, I might add, itself by determined by what it opposes. This may sound very much like Schopenhauer if we ignore the striking dualism that Kozhev constructs. This dualism establishes a basic difference between what Kozhev refers to as animal desire and distinctively human desire. The former being wholly dominated by the imperative to self-preservation, uh, the latter expressing itself primarily through resistance to that imperative. For Kozhev, we become truly human when we risk our, secu our security knowingly, and the greatest risk that we can take in that respect is to knowingly offer up our own lives. The primary example he provides is known to all of you, well, well known to the Kozhev specialists, I suppose, I suppose, but it's known to Hegelians as well, the contest for recognition or supremacy Kozhev reads into the famous discussion of the master-slave relation in subdivision A of chapter four of the Phenomenology of the Spirit. The master is the one who faces death, this isn't Kozhev's account, without flinching, and his opponent, if he flinches, becomes the slave. The master shows no fear of death. The slave is defined by that fear. Mastery is a kind of freedom understood precisely as the absence of concern for self-preservation. The slave is, of course, only a slave and becomes the creature of suffering that turns its entire existence into an attempt to be free from suffering, to negate suffering by negating the causes of suffering. But why does a fight take place? Kozhev's explanation is crucial to his thinking. The fight takes place as a result of human, not animal desire. For Kozhev, desire is profound, human desire is profoundly negative. Kozhev illustrates the point with homely examples, and he actually describes animal desire as simple appetite, the desire for food to satisfy hunger. You destroy something to ingest it. Kozhev claims that this desire negates its object. It does so by ingesting or transforming the object in the process of ingestion. The plant is thus transformed by ingestion into nutrients that maintain the animal's existence. 
All animal desire is transformative in this way. The animal negates by transforming for the sake of self-preservation. Krojev insists, however, that distinctively human desire is different from animal desire. The difference comes clear if we consider the object of desire. The animal takes for an object whatever can satisfy its hunger. The animal's desire is material. Human desire is distinguished by the fact that it is not directly material, but the desire, and this is an awkward expression of Kojev's, the desire of the desire of another. This clumsy locution describes a fundamental shift. Human desire does not relate to an object, but to another human being as a being with its own desires. Moreover, human desire is distinguished by the difference in the type of negation involved. Rather than negating the material object in an act of ingestion, human desire negates another desire by supplanting it, or as Kojev emphasizes, by forcing one party to recognize the desire of another by adopting it as its own. I negate your desire by compelling you to recognize my own in its stead. Human desire from this perspective is pure, brutal self-assertion or the assertion of one desire over another. Human desire is in essence desire for recognition of my desire over your desire. This desire cannot be satisfied until all desires other than mine or ours have been eliminated. The desire for the desire of the other is inherently hegemonic and universalist, since nothing less than universal recognition can offer satisfaction. I quote Kojev, man can be satisfied only by being recognized universally, end of quote. Why is this so? Kojev holds that we cannot be sure of ourselves, that we are not mad until we have eliminated all opposition to our own forms of desire. This is an extraordinary claim as well, and it merits careful comment. Kojev creates an analogy between animal and human desire in this particular respect. Both result from an overwhelming desire for self-preservation. In the case of the animal, ingesting various foods is necessary for the continu continuation of the animal's existence. The basic motive of all animal activity that remains unquestioned. In the case of the human, the desire for the desire of others is based on the need to assert one's own desires over those of others as a way of assuring one's reality, that the way one lives is indeed the real and only way, that one comes into possession of the full and final truth. The full and final truth is universal recognition. One kind of life prevails over all others, such that no rival way of evaluating things remains. One kind of life becomes universal and homogeneous. The slave is emancipated by creating his own reality and by assuring that the reality so created be recognized and accepted by all. This is the slave revolt or revolution for Kojev the final revolution that brings history to a close. But this quest for freedom is what concerns Kojev. The master is a dead end or impasse. Freedom is not even an issue for the master. The peculiar irony is that the master's freedom from the fear of death leaves the master stagnant and unable to change. For Kojev, this is not exactly a problem. Indeed, the problem is the slave. For it is the slave who begins and makes history. He refers to the master as the catalyst for the beginning of history. Put simply, history is precisely the narrative of the slave's attempt to attain emancipation from servitude, or in other words, universal recognition. Now, 
This history should trouble us to pause. Criticism of Kozhev's focus on the master-slave relation is not lacking as a sort of governing metaphor. Robert Pippin, for example, is one of Kozhev's fiercest critics, precisely on account of what he sees as Kozhev's extravagant simplification of and overemphasis on subdivision A of chapter four in the phenomenology. I might add in parenthesis that Pippin's criticism seemed to have something to do with the limitations of the English edition uh, or translation of the text, which excises about 300 pages of the French text. Um, but Pippin still has a point. Kozhev grants enormous significance to the master-slave relation as a sort of paradigm of history. It is central to the narrative he constructs in his lectures and appears to be applied as the fundamental structure that emerges within all historical process. History for Kozhev is struggle, though it would be too much to say that it is the history of class struggle. Nonetheless, history is constituted by a struggle that begins with the fear of death and ends with the vanquishing of that fear. As Kozhev notes, if both parties to the initial struggle die, there's obviously no further struggle. This is the case as well if one party dies. Either possibility precludes further struggle. Only the refusal to engage in the original struggle to the death creates a new struggle that is oriented precisely to overcome the fear of death that is uh, being imposed on the slave or has imposed on the slave his servile status. This overcoming is quite curious, however. The mastery achieved by the slave seems to be an ignoble mastery because it is the highest expression of the imperative to self-preservation that defines the slave as slave in the first place. If the slave achieves final satisfaction or emancipation from nature and the fear of death, this achievement seems illusory since the slave has not conquered his own natural impulse to live. Indeed, the irony of the slave's success is that it is at the same time a terrible failure, a kind of bestialization. The slave in conquering nature allows himself to be conquered by nature, an irony that underscores that the slave does not free himself from the fear of death, but chooses rather to be completely ruled by it to the point where the victorious slave has become nothing more than a beast enslaved to an appetite it cannot control. The slave's emancipation is at once the most complete enslavement, but as we shall see, it is also a kind of suicide. Any decent empirical historian would balk at the reductivism of this interpretation of history, which claims in essence that all history is oriented to salvation or salvation history. I recall Heidegger's famous comment, alle Geschichte wird zur Heilsgeschichte. All history is aimed at emancipation from struggle, at an end of history, at overcoming history. History is the nightmare or reign of error or slaughter, the slaughter bank from which we seek to awake. Here, another layer seems to emerge if we are wont to see in this pattern reflections of the Christian salvation narrative, where one is thrust into the world only to seek in the final account to save oneself from and through it. Though, as with the other narratives woven into Kozhev's commentary on Hegel, the similarity is not exact or ambiguous because Christian salvation tends to reject the narrative of mastery over nature as an expression of grotesque selfishness, of self-preservation grown into a horrific collective egoism. But we can talk about that. That's a bit of an overstatement. Um, it is indeed easy to overlook the strangeness of Kozhev's interpretation of history, since it seems, or the, uh, the Christian interpretation, pardon me, of history, since it seems so familiar to us. Why must history be oriented to salvation? 
Why must history be oriented in any particular way? Can we not conceive of history in other ways? Grosjean's response to these questions is cryptic to say the least, since one may infer, only infer from his focus on the first part of uh, chapter four and the phenomenology, that history is born of the fear of death and has no other possible sense than as an attempt to overcome that fear, either metaphorically or quite literally in the doomed sort of technological revolution that Kozhev assumes to be the final achievement of the slave having freed itself once and for all. The slave, the slave having freed itself from the fear of death is the curious master of the world in Kozhev's uh, language. He calls it le maître du monde, who through technology has overcome death itself. Ironies aside, Kozhev affirms here, if anything, the importance of a teleological narrative of history and insists that this is the only possible narrative of history. No other view of history could possibly be maintained because for Kozhev, there's no other history than the history of uh, philosophy, a philosoph philosophical attitude to the world understood as the cliche has it, as in quotes, shapes of consciousness. The history, the historian's rejection of such an approach as reductive or ideological is itself ideological. The only refuge then for history is an emancipation, an emancipation that completes and thus negates history, ideology, in, in its most ironic aspect, human life itself. As Kozhev notes in the uh, outline, I quote, a purely human universe is inconceivable because without nature, man is nothingness, pure and simple. But he also says that there is no meaning to human existence without the struggle to overcome nature. Emancipation as the full triumph over nature is nothingness and emptiness because full emancipation here, final freedom is itself nothingness. It cannot even be described as a state because any state presupposes nature or limitation. And for Kozhev, nature and limitation seem to be almost synonymous. The slave's victory become as is bestialization, a form of self-immolation of the human, a trenchant irony given the slave's pursuit of self-preservation. This brings me to the other main thread of my discussion, Kozhev's, uh, of this part of Kozhev, Kozhev's notion of wisdom and its relation to the negative. If there are two principal narratives in Kozhev's commentary on Hegel, these are the narrative of the master and slave and the narrative of the final accession to wisdom that according to Kozhev is Hegel's most enduring and revolutionary contribution to philosophy. It is enduring and revolutionary because it brings an end to philosophy as the love of wisdom. This second narrative has generated a great deal of controversy because Kozhev suggests that all basic forms of thinking have been articulated such that there is nothing basically new to articulate. He says that history comes to an end with um, alternatively with Napoleon or indeed later on with Stalin. Um, and Kozhev, he says that we have reached a final stage, that of wisdom, and we may go no further than to repeat what has already been thought in some fashion. Khrushchev's famous claim that history has reached an end derives from this second narrative and is in fact its culmination. Let me describe this narrative in some detail before proceeding to ask a simple but important question. How does the accession to wisdom fit with the narrator, narrative of master and slave? Do they indeed fit together? Are these two versions of the same underlying structure or are they markedly different expressions of a different underlying narrative. The question is important in grasping Kozhev's peculiar challenge to philosophy, 
But it is also important because the reception of Khrushchev's commentary has tended to focus on the master-slave relation as against the arguably far more unusual interpretation of wisdom that emerges in the final set of lectures from 1938 and 1939. The reasons for this are obvious. The claim to omnisci omniscience that accompanies Khrushchev's interpretation of wisdom is provocative and has generally been considered unconvincing or almost puerile irony. The wisdom narrative starts with an uncompromising definition. Wisdom is complete or absolute knowledge. Wisdom has already been achieved with the achievement of absolute knowledge in the sage. The latter is defined as follows, and I quote, in regard to the definition of the sage, all philosophers are in agreement. It is indeed very simple and can be set out in a single phrase. The sage is one capable of responding in a comprehensive, indeed satisfying manner to all questions that one may pose to him in regard to his acts and to respond in such a way that the whole of his responses form a coherent discourse. Or even what amounts to the same thing, the sage is the man completely and perfectly conscious of himself." End of quote. And that's for the uh, last set of lectures from 1938-39. The sage or wise man is omniscient. There is no question that he cannot answer and no answer that he gives may contradict any other answer he gives to other questions. His discourse must be complete and completely consistent. In the interpretation of chapter eight of the phenomenology that follows this definition, Khrushchev attempts to show that Hegel achieves this wisdom not only by answering all questions that can be posed in history, questions regarding action, but by showing also that no further questions may be asked, or what is the same thing, that all other questions that may be asked lack sense or are in error. Khrushchev provides justification of his claim regarding Hegel in these 1938-1939 lectures by reference to yet another narrative. Khrushchev claims this narrative should prove conclusively that wisdom is at hand and that no other narratives are, or no other narrative can possibly be conceived unless it is conceived as error. Khrushchev borrows the narrative from the rich Russian theological tradition, though uh, affinities with Feuerbach and Bauer are also evident. It is the orthodox narrative of deification, of man having become God, or uh, you can say theosis or teosis, depending on your Greek teacher. By becoming God, man frees himself of himself. Man becomes nothing or discovers his proper identity as nothing. Khrushchev seems to reverse the traditional emphasis, however. His deification turns God into man as a finite deity, ending up in a most peculiar combination, that of finite omniscience. And as Khrushchev tries to convince us, the only possible omniscience is finite. For, Khrushchev's, uh, for Khrushchev, Hegel's phenomenology expresses and overcomes the theological narrative and as such is a profoundly atheist text. Khrushchev's claim then turns out to be that Hegel has in fact become wise by realizing and developing the only possible form of omniscience or absolute finality that we can imagine, that of the finite God. Khrushchev expresses his view in a remarkable passage from uh, the fourth of the lectures from 1938 and 1939, uh, a text that I may note is not included in the English translation, but only in the French. And I quote now, it suffices to read a manual of Christian theology, I emphasize Christian, 
where God is effectively a total and infinite being. And to say after uh, having read the manual, the being in question, that's me. This is simple, of course. Yet even today, this seems to us to be an absurdity, an enormity without equal. And we label as mad anyone who openly makes the affirmation. This means that it is extremely difficult to affirm, that is, seriously. And it is a fact that millennia of philosophical thought have passed before Hegel finally dared to say it. It's simply that it was not easy to come to the concept of a Christian God. And then having come to it, it was not easy to identify oneself with this concept, to apply it to oneself. Hegel tells us that this is possible only for the citizen of the universal and homogeneous state. It is only this citizen who may affirm the identity with God without being mad, who may affirm it by being a sage, who may affirm it in revealing thus a reality that is by proclaiming an absolute truth." End of quote. Well, laced with a certain irony, this passage brings together several of the main strands of Kozhev's argument as it leads into a more detailed account of the possibility of finite omniscience. The sage is not merely the end of philosophy. The sage must also bring to an end the theological position. And this is only possible if the sage assumes the identity of God. The obvious question is, how may the sage, the finite being, assume the identity of God without contradiction? In other words, how does God become man? Or how does man become atheist? Kozhev's answer to this question is quite complicated, hardly surprising given the nature of the question itself. Indeed, Kozhev would expend more effort on attempting to prove that all possible basic shapes of consciousness, as such shapes of action as well, have been passed through uh, and uh, he would, sorry, Kozhev would spend more time trying to prove that all basic forms of consciousness have been passed through than on any other aspect of his interpretation of Hegel. The posthumous publication of his extensive attempts to bring Hegel's thought up to date attests both to this enormous effort and to a pervasive sense of failure that emerges in the increasing technical complexity and ironical stance of his later work. In a word, Kozhev sensed how fragile or absurd his insistence on an end having already come into view might seem, and he struggled for many years to answer his critics and his own doubts. Like Kant, whose 12 categories have invited so much resistance, Kozhev's attempt to show that all possible modes of thought have been articulated has been received with skepticism, if not ridicule. To discuss Kozhev's technical arguments is an absorbing, though ultimately disappointing topic. Uh, and not one I want to develop today, though we can talk about it in the question period if you like. Let me provide here a short superficial answer. The sage emerges when the world has become completely a product of human labor. When the world has become fully a human creation as evinced by the historical unfolding of human self-creation in time. One could argue that the chief importance of Hegel for Kozhev lies in the comprehensiveness of the Hegelian system its devotion to a complete and seamless interpretation of reality as beholden to the concept divine as time or history, and thus to a final construction of reality as distinctively human. This sounds like a radical constructivism, and in a sense it is. Kozhev argues that distinctively human activity, the basic action of history, is aimed at negating nature as that which is different from or threatening to the human. The distinctively human core of reality is to transform nature into a product of human activity where Kozhev differs from the constructivist model is thus in his emphasis on negation. In this respect, Kozhev adopts a key Hegelian trope, the so-called 
uh, and I quote, monstrous power of the negative, we've all heard about the, the ungeheure Macht des Negativen, to describe both the essential movement towards emancipation of the slave and the ascent to wisdom. Freedom results from the negation of all limitations on human activity. And that is to say, negation becomes complete when nature has been abolished as the regulating power. The slave and the sage replace nature by a negation that is equivalent to the complete self-production of the new human being, a being that is distinctively human because it has consciously overcome death. Now, I'll leave the ironies to that behind for the moment. It should be obvious, however, that this new being is deeply problematic. Has the slave truly achieved emancipation from nature? And if so, does this emancipation amount to much more than a form of collective suicide? Or an extreme form of self-abnegation in the universal and homogeneous state. We've already addressed these questions rather quickly in passing. For Kojev, they're crucial. And I quote, this is the final uh, few paragraphs of the final lecture from 1939, the last uh, text he ever wrote on this. Um, and start the quote. The entire sphere of finitude, by the fact that it is itself something belonging to the senses, collapses into the true or truthful faith before the thought and intuition of the eternal, becoming here one and the same thing. All the gnats of subjectivity are burned up in this devouring fire, and even the conscience of this giving of oneself and out of this annihilation, he uses the word vernichten, is annihilated. Annihilation is itself annihilated. <laughs> Vernichtung ist selbst vernichtet. So Kojav, this is a, that first line he quotes from Hegel, then he goes to his own gloss on that. Hegel knows it and says it, but he also says in one of his letters that this knowledge has cost him dearly. He speaks of a period of total depression that he lived through between the 25th and 30th year of his life, of a hypochondria that went bis zu Erlähmung aller Kräfte, to the point of paralysis of all his forces, and which arose precisely from the fact that he could not accept the necessary abandonment of individuality, that is in fact of humanity, that the idea of absolute knowledge demands. But finally he overcame this hypochondria and becoming wise through this last acceptance of death, he published a few years later, the first part of the system of knowledge entitled Science of the Phenomenology of the Spirit, where he can reconcile himself with all that is and has been by declaring that there will never again be anything new on the earth, end of quote. The end of history is an abandonment of individuality, that is in fact of humanity and thus of death as well. If Kojev seeks to cultivate revolutionary ardor in his students, this final comment is certainly bracing, if not rather devastating. The post-historical state is one of, and I quote, quote Kojev again, living bodies with human form, but emptied of spirit, end of quote. Another image Kojev offers to describe of what is left in, the post in this post-historical state. The question is, what does Kojev intend to do to his audience? He provides a drastic account of a humanity bereft of individuality that is nothing more than a grouping of bodies. But this account is quite consistent. The accession to a post-historical state for Kojev requires the separation of human and animal desire. The human being has become a point that interrupts the repetition of the animal world, a repetition that maintains a system of reliable continuances. Indeed, animals seek self-preservation as part of a larger economy of continuities that sustains the natural system. 
to the extent the slave overcomes the fear of death, he interrupts this natural system and he does so through work. The final end of that work is to create a world in which the human being is master. But this world cannot be the natural system. Indeed, the slave's final desire to overcome the given is a desire to overcome the natural system in toto. How might we, entrenched as we are in the natural system, possibly come to understand the state that has no narrative, can have no narrative, a state that is in many respects similar to that of the master, albeit with the major difference that the master faces death by risk, whereas the slave does so fundamentally through work. We may understand the state only subtractively or negatively. The progress of the slave is subtractive insofar as the slave peels off the layers of natural being that afflict and enslave it. The slave's progress is a freedom from predication or a form of self-negation. Hence, Korshev's claim about individuality is not so difficult to understand in this context. Arguably more difficult to understand is the dark image of bodies without spirit. But indeed, what is left after the human leaves, after the human has come to com complete itself? Bodies, pure materiality, whatever that might be. How can we grasp these bodies in any other way, even as a figure of speech? Kuzhev's radicality has described the end of history as an essentially post-predicative state. Bodies without spirit, in this sense, are nothing else than matter. And no one has succeeded in explaining what matter in itself might be. Kozhev has, in effect, separated form from matter. He has reversed the progress of philosophy from Parmenides to Hegel, or he has fully outlined what it must entail. For Kozhev argues that the narrative of the slave is one in which time and the concept become one. It is the progressive infiltration of time into the concept. What Kozhev does not say so directly is that this identification is only possible in the end state where time and concept become one an identification that in its silence equals the beginning of philosophy with Parmenides, thereby providing the necessary circularity and closure to history. But if this is the case, Kozhev cannot explain how he is able to declare that time and the concept have become one. To do so implies that time and the concept have not become one because there is a discursive position that allows one to describe that unity, a position at once in and outside the circle. If this position were not so, it would no longer be able to declare itself as such. In other words, and this is a crucial point, the unity of time and concept eliminates reflection or consciousness of any X. Neither philosophy nor any speech is at all possible. The abandonment of individuality is indeed central to these two primary narratives Kozhev develops in his lectures on the phenomenology, that of the master and slave and that of the ascent to final wisdom in the figure of the sage. The narrative of master and slave ends with the establishment of the universal and homogeneous state, wherein all citizens come to recognize themselves and their fellow citizens. The ideal citizen is the sage who is not only a reflection of all his fellow citizens, but the one whose thinking articulates the transformation of the inegalitarian relation of master and slave to the completed egalitarianism of the universal and homogeneous state. The most interesting aspect of the abandonment of individuality is that Kozhev conceives of it as the perfection of human freedom and of humanity itself. To be truly free and human, one must abandon one's individuality and humanity so conceived. This equation of human freedom with the abandonment of individuality is hardly new. A number of religious traditions depend on it, but Kozhev is avowedly, is avowedly atheist. An abandonment of individuality for him, though bearing an obvious structural similarity to the abandonment of individuality in communion with God, is much closer to certain currents in the Buddhist tradition. 
which Kurjev otherwise referred to as an atheistic religion. The crucial proposition of Kurjev's thinking about freedom as abandonment of individuality, however, is somewhat more provocative, though linked to several mystical traditions. The ultimate proof of human freedom is the willingness to commit suicide, to let go of one's individual, thus material existence, once and for all. Kurjev argues that suicide so conceived is the most truly human and emancipatory act. And the, he, and the obvious corollary is that anyone who is unwilling to commit suicide is not fully human and is thus not achieved and cannot achieve genuine emancipation. To the contrary, those who are not willing to, do the volunt uh, to uh, die voluntarily are trapped and well, and well, defensive individuality is the exoteric rationale. The more pervasive resistance to suicide comes from the so-called instinct of self-preservation expressed in the putative need to live, which of course is always rooted in the individual because as Kurjev says, only individuals die. The word instinct is the operative term here, since instinct applies a natural disposition that by analogy with the animal world cannot be varied. Instinct is the expression of natural necessity, the way of nature. Hence, if human beings act in accordance with this instinct, they are hardly human for Kujev. They are nothing more than birds or bees performing a role assigned to them in a vast natural system that has nothing to do with the human or with history. To act in accordance with the instinct of self-preservation is a form of servitude. As yet not recognized as such, that recognition comes from the combat, which initiates the master and slave relation. And for Kojev, there is no possibility for the expression of the genuinely human, as long as the instinct for self-preservation is at work as the primary law in the way we act. For Kojev, both the human and history are effectively the same and are born only from the rejection of instinct and the natural system as such. History, in fact, begins only with the rejection of instinct and the world as a natural system. There is no history without this rejection, nor anything resembling humanity. Kojev identifies rejection as the initially free and negative act, the true beginning. Natural history is a contradictio in adjecto. Kojev's concept of freedom emerges as a rejection or negation of instinct and of nature as such. It is thus also a rejection of the body to the extent that the instinct for self-preservation is based on the fear of bodily annihilation. If we bring things together for a moment here, individuality becomes identified with the body and the bodily imperative to avoid death, an imperative that includes the notion of the immaterial soul with the various forms of resurrection, which Khrushchev considers the one uh, theistic mistake of Christianity. With all due concision, freedom for Khrushchev is freedom from nature, from the imposition of natural necessity in all its forms, including those desires that are essentially the fruit of freedom for the modern bourgeois. In contrast to Hobbes and the Hobbesian notion of satisfaction as the fulfillment of natural desires, the most important of which is the desire to avoid violent death. Kojev maintains that this kind of satisfaction is nothing less than servile bestialization and the rejection of the possibility of being human, of making sense of humanity as free as other than and in opposition to nature. To get a full scope of Kojev's radicality, I cite here a passage from a later work, the remarkable work on Kant uh, that he wrote in 1953. Uh, that, and it begins to take flight in the first 20 pages with an interesting and somewhat convoluted discussion of uh, Buddhism, which I'll quote. Uh, this is Kojev. For the Buddhist, the natural life is eternal, or at least co-eternal with time. 
it is sufficient to act in any way whatsoever, to act from desire, karma, to be reborn, and thus to live indefinitely. On the contrary, one must do something special in order to extinguish oneself, nirvana, after one's natural death, to wit, i.e. to acquaint oneself with the dogma, dharma, and to apply the discipline, vinaya, which consists, moreover, in doing nothing or doing nothing, i.e. the way, way of the Taoists to do non-doing. That is, to suppress the desire, raga, that leads necessarily to action, determining, even if moral, a future life. Now, as far as he is religious, the Buddhist admits the impossibility of satisfaction in this worldly life. Religious satisfaction or salvation can only consist in extinction, since even if he is reborn, which is possible if one applies a certain moral as Buddha or the Supreme God, he lives a worldly life and cannot obtain the religious satisfaction that is the only true value for him. What is truly remarkable uh, is that the Buddha advises against the supreme morality that divinizes man because having become God, that is perfectly happy or blessed, he is no longer able even to recognize the unworthy character of this blessedness in such a manner that the very idea of genuine satisfaction, i.e. happiness of which he is worthy, becomes forever inaccessible to him in such a manner that he is condemned to eternal life or co-eternal with time. Of course, satisfaction is only lived during the life of the Buddha, that is, of the accomplished Buddhist, and there's nothing else in the final account but faith in the sense of subjective certitude concerning expectation of death at some point. Close for the Buddha and deliberately far away, indeed indefinite for the Bodhisattva, definitely and for good. And this early on in the discussion of Kant and the critique of pure reason. I end the quote. The crucial proposition of this passage is that no life can be truly blessed, dignified or free. The worldly life of the individual is base and senseless, provided the true sense of life is nirvana. That is, while one is alive, one remains a servant to the vulgar necessities of life itself, no matter how one, uh, excuse me, no matter how one casts them. One remains a slave, an individual, and selfish self. And those who think that they thus become, or that may, they may become blessed, selfless, or otherwise free through adherence to morality or the law or the truth, are not even able to recognize the unworthy character of their lives, since they deceive themselves so effectively. For one who claims to overcome individuality, while still living, has fallen prey to a perpetually tempting and base deception. Now, if this is so, then one sort of, what sort of state can the final state be, the universal and homogeneous state, or to put it with mild irony, Kantian purgatory? Well, this state plays an important ideological role in Hegel lectures, Khrushchev's most expansive treatment of his structure is in the outline of a phenomenology of right. This long text offers an overview of the basic elements that pertain to the universal and homogeneous state as legal structures or structures of what Khrushchev refers to as a system of droit, right or recht. This system of right creates a calculus or logic of action that is explicitly hegemonic permitting no remainder or custom or of custom or justice external to the system of right it proposes. It is thus universalist and final, or at the very least points to a final system of regulation in the universal and homogeneous state. The first section of the treatise provides an account of the basic unit that ties the entire text together, the uh, juridical situation in Khrushchev's words. 
The juridical situation is a formal relation between three parties. Two agents in potential conflict with each other, A and B, he gives the A and B, and a third intervening figure C that serves to police and adjudicate any actual conflicts. Kozhev indicates that this relation is not an abstraction, but names the most simple possible relation that may give rise to intervention or adjudication by the third party, uh, C. Kozhev holds that there is no juridical situation when there are only two parties involved, uh, be simply because there is no possibility for adjudication. Adjudication is the fundamental notion in the treatise, at least the first part of the treatise. Adjudication presupposes a conflict for which there is an established and universally agreed resolution procedure. In a conflict with only two parties, there can be no assumed resolution procedure. Indeed, the assumed resolution procedure is according to Kozhev, the trajectory of history itself as the history of the master-slave relation. Therefore, a resolution procedure is only possible at the end of history when the conflict between master and slave has concluded. Kozhev does not put it in this way in the opening section of the treatise. Instead, he addresses the distinction between the political and the juridical relation by arguing that the former presupposes conflict between friend and enemy, following Carl Schmidt, whereas the latter presupposes a more general amity. In other words, the juridical relation presupposes general agreement among the parties as to the procedures institution of conflict resolution. It thus assumes that the desire for recognition which gives rise to conflicts has been satisfied, that politics has been once and for all eliminated. A nagging concern emerges here, of course, if the universal and homogeneous state represents the final overcoming of individuality, why would there be any need for a juridical apparatus? Surely the abolition of individuality would bring with it the abolition of selfish desire, as in recognition. That is the perennial source of conflict, of the temptation to place one's own over others. The universal and homogeneous state as a system of right would seem to involve a contradiction. Kozhev's treatise on right qualifies this obvious implication somewhat by suggesting, as I said earlier, that the universal and homogeneous state is in its purity, a limit case. As such, possible to think, but impossible to achieve in action. He therefore states, and makes it rather clear that the final state is a state of terminal non-finality, if you like. Nonetheless, the comprehensive teaching of the treatise makes no sense without another firm uh, presupposition that the juridical signals the ultimate end of the political, a struggle of history, individuality as such, where the political finally ends. The juridical truly comes into its own as the authoritative ordering of action in the universal homogeneous state. Conflict has come to an end. The juridical system becomes a sort of surrogate instinct, a new or second nature to correct the error that conflict represents and to create the groundwork for a terminal condition in which individuality understood as error will be definitively overcome or disciplined. Viewed in this light, individuality is a deviation or error to be suppressed by a juridical system an administrative state. And this suppression is essential to the universal and homogeneous state itself that thereby offers the most radical emancipation from the fear of death itself. For if one no longer seeks to preserve one's individuality, one is no longer afraid to die. And as Kozhev says elsewhere, you know, as I, and I've repeated, only individuals die. To return to the main thread of our account, the essence of history for Kozhev 
It's the struggle for emancipation from individuality, from error, from the instinct for self-preservation that is the root of all conflict, illusion. By establishing equality of recognition in the universal and homogeneous state, Khrushchev creates a final order in which all are one and one is all, in which the I is we and the we is I. The universal and homogeneous state purports to create thereby the most radical freedom, the freedom from the fear of death, since the fundamental equation with which we be began that between the end of individuality or suicide and freedom has been incarnated in a necessarily final social organization. But as we have also noted, Khrushchev is hardly sanguine about the possibility of realizing this final homogeneous plenitude. The tension in the individual between self-preservation and self-abnegation or immolation admits of no easy resolution, provided the only resolution is suicide or death. If Khrushchev promotes the universal and homogeneous state precisely as the locus of this resolution, he also appears to deny that this final state is capable of achieving practically the full freedom that he otherwise associates with suicide. We are left with the tension that comes to the surface in lectures on absolute knowing, as well as in different terms in the, in the vision of the post-historical state. Uh, and uh, these descriptions of living bodies, which I've mentioned, deprived of spirit, refer to the complete bestialization of the human being after the end of history, suggesting that the juridical mechanisms of the universal homogeneous state indeed offer a sort of substitute for animal instinct that eliminates the error of the human for good while leaving behind a spiritless beast which all conflict has been definitively resolved. Here is the administrative state at its most sinister for those who value a kind of freedom, that of the individual whose cogency as freedom Khrushchev denies. Given the foregoing, it might be well or, simp or simplest to argue that a graduated reading is the most attractive and consistent. The universal homogeneous state constituting a transitional uh, or a perpetually transitional political structure on the way to the attainment of the complete abandonment of individuality in the juridical administrative state. Yet of course, Khrushchev's more radical position is difficult to avoid. According to that position, no life can achieve full emancipation since individuality cannot be eliminated other than through death. And without full emancipation, it is not at all clear what sense can be given to emancipation at all. After all, what is partial emancipation, especially if that emancipation consists of an unabated war with the individual, corporeal and material self. Again, we come to a precariously graduated position where the best we may achieve is a social organization that maximally suppresses individuality and the myriad temptations to deception that it offers. From this viewpoint, the universal and homogeneous state may seem more Kantian than Hegelian, an attempt to achieve a goal that is impossible by definition. Yet Khrushchev refuses to accept that impossibility, at least on the surface, where he frequently proclaims the end of history as definitive and actual, either in the Napoleonic or Stalinist state. He thereby leaves a basic tension for us to resolve, orients at promoting a state that does little more than act as a purgatorial waiting room on the way to true but impossible salvation. Khrushchev is not always guarded about the basic trust of his ostensibly emancipatory thinking. This is a quote. The suppression of man, that is of time, that is of action, for the benefit of state being, that is, or static being, pardon me, that is of space, that is of nature, is thus the suppression of error for the benefit of the truth. And if history is certainly the history of human errors, man himself is perhaps only an error of nature that by chance, freedom was not immediately 
eliminated, end of quote. This is as succinct a description of Kozhev's humanism as one is likely to find in any of his writings. The irony, of course, is quite vulgar. The end of humanity, the properly human pursuit, is to dispense with humanity or the human via the necessary abandonment of individuality, that is, in the, in the fact of humanity, as combining differing orientations which simply do not admit of reconciliation. One has either the spectacle of unrelenting selfishness and violence, a reign of error that if uh, it were more honest would celebrate error and violence as the very essence of our humanity, or a more pure and radical humanity that pose, imposes as its goal the most radical suppression of humanity itself, of individuality and selfishness in the ostensibly peaceful and putatively Stalinist universal and homogeneous state of trained and unconscious beasts. Is Kozhev really so unclear though? Perhaps he is if we take his curious use of human to denote both the capacity to be in error and to terminate error. But I might suggest that he is otherwise very clear, even primitively so. One is faced either with the prospect of unceasing conflict, however disguised, vanity, cruelty, and hierarchy as opposed to a suppression of individuality so radical that it makes everyday Stalinism seem a horribly distorted, if not monstrous incarnation of the purity of the universal and homogeneous state. Even the latter is not radical enough for Kozhev, however, because it is still a compromise that avoids the best and most beautiful life for Kozhev, the one that frees itself from life. Thank you. That's it. And I'm sorry, that was long. Oh, thank you. It was really interesting and fascinating. And I'm well, sure I tried that... to cover a lot. I apologize. I left a lot of lacunae, but maybe we could uh, discuss some of those. Um, but yes, it was very long. Oh, I think it was an hour. Thank you for your patience. Yeah. So are there any questions? Feel free to just write your names in chat. Otherwise, I can begin the question. Okay. I mean, I have so many questions actually and comments. And one is, let me begin with the question of homogeneity. So, so for, uh, for Carl Schmitt, for instance, democracy is homogeneity. So democracy is, is the question of the homogeneity of the people. And of course, his whole project of defending order uh, and even criticizing Hobbes for, for ad, uh, admitting the private space of, of consciousness as a potential, um, as a potential anarchic pheno phenomena um, seems in a way related to, to Koshev's idea of uh, the homogeneity of, of the end of history as, as, as a state where, where individuality is suppressed. And the difference is of course that for Schmidt, the question of um, homogeneity and the question of, of the state's uh, homogeneity is in a sense an attempt to, to perhaps not stop history, but to defer or, or stop the end of history. Whereas Koshev course wants to, it seems that he wants to accelerate the, the tendencies inside history that in a sense 
points to a, a similar kind of homogeneity. So it seems that both figures, Schmidt and Khrushchev, are in a sense uh, totalitarian thinkers, uh, defenders of, of uh, either the Nazi state, of course, or at least some kind of uh, Francoist state after the, after the Second World War. Whereas Khrushchev, as you said, even thought that the Stalinist Russia was in a sense not enough. So it would be interesting to hear how you think on the relation between Khrushchev, Schmidt, and the question of homogeneity. And I have several other questions, but we can begin there. Okay, well, I mean, that's a, that's a really excellent question, especially given the, the really pronounced interest that Khrushchev um, demonstrates for Schmidt's work. But I would have to say that uh, Khrushchev would be, I would align Khrushchev more with the enemy, uh, such as in Schmidt's writing on the Leviathan or so on and so forth. Khrushchev's notion of homogeneity is, is radically universalist. And it is radically universalist in the sense that one of the ironies he builds, that the uh, destruction, so to speak, of the individual and the destruction of, and the attempt to minimize material difference and this kind of overall uh, homogeneity, overall achievement uh, of almost a mathematical state where everybody is a point with no specific identity other than that is not something that I think you see in Khrushchev. And in fact, Arbeb in, in Schmidt. And in fact, Khrushchev brings up, that's where homogeneity comes from, is it's a mathematical term. And he brings up its use in physics as saying that every human being in the final state is essentially like a point. And I'm reminded of this, of Heidegger's own attack on Cartesian uh, in uh, Das Ding. Uh, and uh, this notion that uh, Cartesianism turns every individual or every every individual into a unit, every, you know, so, so, or uh, a, a, a coordinate on a, on a grid. And there's no individual identity other than uh, this emplacement in a coordinate, in a coordinated stru in a structure, I think there's something like that in Khrushchev. Uh, whether the, the, where Khrushchev uh, seems to slide between something akin to Schmidt and what Khrushchev would prefer to do is that Khrushchev makes it quite clear that that complete um, effacement of individual identity is not something that can be achieved, likely because the only way to achieve it would be termination uh, or a radical, for, a, a radical uh, form of, of destruction of identity that is almost hard to imagine, right? Personal identity. So he says that as long as there, that's why he brought in the Buddhist example or his quote there, because he says, as long as we're eating, as long as we're doing this thing, we're still affirming our difference from other people. We're still affirming at least in potential, in potentia, the, the basis of conflict with another so that I can eat or that I can live my life. So Khrushchev says that that's, it, it's, he doesn't put it together quite so clearly, but for him, that's why you want the punitive state in form to maximally uh, suppress that. I'm not sure that that has anything to do with Schmidt's way of looking at things. Uh, and Schmidt doesn't want to, he talks about homogeneous units, but I, I, Schmidt still retains a conflict model. Even if it within the specific Remember, you, the specific unit, he'll say homogeneity is what is want, you want to achieve. There's still that homogeneity and that identity is derived from its opposition to another. Whereas what's distinctive about Khrushchev is the elimination of uh, the attempt to eliminate all opposition. It's not catacontic. It wants to. You know, Khrushchev does not want to, 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 to 
because uh, when you say, when you know to say that you, one wants to suppress the end is a very euphemistic way of saying that we're going to have conflict forever, uh, and that's supposed to be a salvific notion, really. Conflict forever uh, is going to somehow uh, free human beings from. Is a are silly, based in in one group's more or less arbitrary desires as it tries to to uh, exercise those desires or impress upon another group its um, uh, its uh, primacy. So I think that there's I agree there's there's homogeneity is interesting, but in and, and it's something they both talk about, but in Kojev it is much more radical, and it is informed by the modern technology, the very modern technological or mathematical way of thinking, pardon me, technological, it's not fair, not right, mathematical way of thinking that Heidegger rejects and Schmidt essentially puts in question as well. Is that? Uh, yeah, it was a great, great answer. So Eduardo, had a question? Yes, thank you. Thanks. Uh, hola, Jeff. Uh, great um, uh, talk and, and very interesting. Um, I, I wasn't familiar with, with Kojev except through his uh, work on, on the notion of authority, which I, I, I found very helpful and uh, a very interesting mm -hmm. taxonomy. Uh, but I, I'm, I'm an EU lawyer. My name is Eduardo Pedro, and I'm, uh, I'm in Lund, um, and I'm a researcher in EU law. And I was interested in, in your um, sort of biographical um, sort of overview uh, and then his involvement because I've read quite a lot of uh, histories of, of the EU and his name isn't uh, sort of seems to be mentioned uh, very much in that context so I don't know whether there's been some brushing out of uh, his um, presence in, 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 in that history but anyway um, your this idea of, of the, the juridical overcoming the political and the achievement of this juridical homogeneous state uh, that uh, you you described as I, as I understood it, um, is there any connection between that philosophical sort of uh, engagement of of, of Kujev and and his practical work as uh, as a civil servant and and his ambition uh, as for the European Union? Because I mean, one of the ways in which the EU is criticised is exactly because it sort of takes deprives the political um, sphere of influence and sort of jury defies um, politics effectively. Do, is the, did he see that? Did he foresee that? Did he, is there any, can we make any parallels between his philosophical, philosophical investigations and his uh, political engagement? Yes, thank you, Eduardo. That's a, that's, it's a marvelous question. And I think in terms of, there is, a, there is actually a, a PhD student in Spain who has done a good deal of work on Kojev's memos and so on uh, while he was a, a, a higher level bureaucrat. And it is quite evident, I think, and there's a, he has amassed quite a bit of evidence that uh, Kojev was clearly, uh, had something akin to a, a, a sort of mock-up of a universal state 
or universal homogeneity, a state underway to that in his um, um, desire to support European integration and the way he worked both sides as well. Because this fellow is acquired, it's, it's fascinating because he works with, he probably was working in certain way with the Soviets as well. And it's evident he felt he was, he could work with all different sides, but the end game for him was to try to unify Europe and create a new, and unify the two worlds, which he felt were the same. Uh, he felt that uh, the Soviet, Soviet communism, American capitalism were essentially the same, though ideolo ideologically differently tinged, but he wants to move to some sort of, uh, uh, he, uh, some reconciliation um, between those uh, differing views to what he felt were the same under, underlying uh, bourgeoisification, if you like, creation of material, um, a material basis by which uh, a, a universal state could be with, with a broader distri distribution of, uh, of wealth. He also thought about that. Um, the talk he gave in 1957 uh, at Carl Schmitt's invitation is on the third world. It is on integration, economic integration uh, and work between Europe and the third world. Um, so what you see is, uh, and it works on several different levels. On the European level with France, he tries to put, you, you, you look, he looks at France as, as having an integrated influence with Germany as starting to build a, a broader European unity. Um, and a fascinating thing is in 1945, okay, in April, 1945, he wrote a memo that, that I would think was published in 1990 um, where he talks about the future of France. And he says, France, will become a second great power in Europe unless it creates what he called a Latin empire, a unity between the various uh, Latin uh, countries in Europe. Um, and he insists that there's a cultural basis for this and so on and so forth, so forth and that the future will be the future of grand coalitions and a grand coalitions working together. Now, that's a, like everything Kojeva wrote, there's a strategic intent in that. He wanted to get an intention, attention from, in, uh, from uh, certain higher-ups in, in, in um, one of the French ministries and so on and so forth. That's neither here nor there. But the key point is, he claims, very interesting, he said, Hitler's failure was his nationalism, was his desire to go out on his own. Was, and he, there's an implicit critique of Schmidt in this, by the way, Martin, but the notion that the attempt to go out on your own as a state against all other states, which is what every Schmidtian state, state would have to be, is going to fail. And that the only way is to design and to further larger coalitions. Now, Kojev did this strategically to consist that coalitions are important and he looked at cultural similarities and so on and so forth. But his bigger target was to build, was to integrate those bigger coalitions too. And this is why he, he I, you know, the evidence is again, it's so, it's so tenuous that it's unfortunate, but it's, it's quite evident he, he dealt with the Soviets, he dealt with, uh, uh, and he, he had his wide contacts in Europe and he tried very, very, um, in a hidden way, though, but he tried very hard to build, to to work, to to, to construct the European Union, and and, and a closer economic ties. And it's evident that he worked on all these different spheres with the notion of pushing toward toward this universal state. Uh, and uh, so there's, I think, there is a definite connection. And I think it's very interesting to see how he moves from the radicality of the Hegel lectures that he gave before the war to this position he picks up during the war in 1943, which was always latently there, but obviously selling a, a, a state on the complete extirpation of individuality is probably not gonna be a great sales 
to the bourgeois, the bourgeois probably not going to buy it, eat it up. So he sells a different thing. And he sells mutual accommodation, mutual gain, all these sorts of things. Uh, and his mind was, was endlessly fertile for these sorts of, uh, uh, this kind of propaganda. He called his lectures in the 30s, philosophical propaganda. He's got a wonderful ability to try to seduce people and to try to see, well, seduce people by seeing what they want, wanted and finding a way that they could hang it up. So in the bureaucracy, in the French, when he was in the director of the foreign relations, of course, he, he worked, he, had, he didn't even have an office. He just sort of, he had a place that they let him go, but he had, he liked to have individual relations with the people who counted. And they all knew that he was there and they would count on him for arguments and so on and so forth. So he played this very quiet, but uh, which he liked, but he had this very influ influential role. Um, and he worked with each individual, never with groups, because I think he felt you could seduce individuals and do things better with individuals and so on and so forth. But the overall plan you see is very similar. It is to bring together these different units and different people in this notion of, the, of a collective, in a, in a greater collective, without seeming too Soviet, of course, in, in the post-war in Europe, but with building, uh, building Europe as a bulwark against the Soviet Union, for the, where that wasn't his probably his deeper intent. But yes, I'm, I'm going on too long, but I think to make a, 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 a long story very short, I think there's a clear connection between his choice of practical political activity after the war and into the final direction and, uh, of, of that. And he is the father uh, in some sense, intellectually, he's not the, there are many others, but he's one of the fathers of the administrative state. That is so controversial nowadays. Does that Thank help you. at all? Thank you, that was excellent. Thank you, very interesting. So Turmut and then Dritro, and perhaps you can ask your questions, both of you, and then Jeff can ask. Yeah, okay. So. I mean, this is so fascinating, and thank you very much. I have a question which relates directly to your answer on Eduardo's question. Now my internet connection is unstable, it says. I hope you hear me. I do. I do. Perfect. Um, so it's, it relates to this, um, this practical political activity and this end goal of his, which uh, when you talked about it, I, 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 I uh, shifted back and forth between hearing it as a very... Um, uh, practical and political, historical, empirical goal in a sense, and also but at the same time also existing on this um, ontological like uh, level. And I guess that these are not really in, in 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 conflict necessarily. But I wonder if you could say something more about that because this discussion about, uh, for example, the, the Buddhist, um, 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 the Buddhist philosophy and the. Uh, attempt to reach nirvana is, of course, I mean, that's also something which is an individual uh, uh, attempt by, by, by people who, who practice uh, in that tradition, but it's also this <clears throat> end goal of, of the universe. And this is connected to another question. About, you know, okay, we, we can understand homogeneity as, as having to do with the, with the overcoming of individuality. Uh, of, of the individuality of human beings, but um, should we, or and if so, in what sense should we understand homogeneity as also having to do with the overcoming of the individuality of particular states? Uh, but then you hinted at this um, uh, very much so, and and that that becomes increasingly uh, significant to Kuzhev as, as I understand it. And 
also, as I understand it, being someone who works on Hegel, it's something that is anticipated at the end of the philosophy of right. Um, however, the, the specific question that I have is when moving from this level of the individuality of human beings to the individuality of a particular slave, uh, sorry, states, um, what happens methodologically with the word phenomenological? So when we're talking about the the phenomenology of right, I, I have a certain working understanding of what he's talking about, you know, like the appearance of juridical agents and so on and so forth uh, to human consciousness. Um, but at the level of, of the state where, you know, we're dealing with similar kind of structures that we're trying to overcome, um, you know, is this why we're stuck, you know, forever agonistically shuttling back and forth? Is it because we can't actually have a phenomenological attempt to overcome you know, the individuality of the state. It seems like, again, to put it in kind of boring Hegelian terms, like you can have a phenomenology of spirit, but, you know, you'd have maybe a philosophy of right, maybe some other things, but yeah. So does it, it seems like he derives this point about human individuality and wants to move up to the state, but his methodology is phenomenological. So how does how does that work? Can you say something about that? I'd be very yeah. yeah, I mean, no, that's a, that's a fantastic question, okay? It really is, because I think for me, I find that this is this is one of the zones in Kozel's zone thinking that is most murky and most problematic. Um, it's it's the transition. I, even in the the Hegel lectures, for example, uh, when he talks about the revolutionary um, or how this the, the ambiguity that tends the slaves uh, somehow coming to freedom, because um, at one point he will say the slave needs to come to freedom by also revolutionary activity. And he talks about the slave uh, as becoming the, uh, the citizen, uh, the worker soldier. Um, but he's always, I think for me, it's an unsatisfactory zone of ambiguity and how, first of all, even you get to the point of uh, this revolution, of, of creating this, this, uh, this, this sort of revolutionary state. And then he says, look, Napoleon created it. Then he says, Stalin created it. Well, those are unsatisfactory analogies. There's no question. So to me, and I don't think that he, he, he either gets us to an end or, or gets us to the sort of projected end without really giving us a satisfactory notion of how we get there, or, or um, he prevaricates on how we get there. Uh, with one essay uh, talking about uh, technological mastery and work Another essay talking about revolutionary violence. Um, and I must say, uh, it may be my limitation, but I have not been able to, I, you know, I've looked at this extensively and in my book, I, I, I considered it, it's hard for me to figure out uh, what he really, if you want to get concrete methodology, concrete way of, of, of looking at the difference between the phenomenology, philosophy of right, the idea of shapes of consciousness and a concrete state and how you get there. It's very unclear, as it is unclear in Hegel, by the way, of course. Um, and so he doesn't uh, clarify that. And I think that's one of the places where you, you reach to, uh, I wouldn't want to call it a weakness because it, oh, academics love weaknesses because they're, they're so uninteresting. But I think it's an area that I, I, I don't think he provides a really good picture of transition a really good picture. I, I think that his action itself was an attempt to try to, to figure a transition after the war. But I mean, theoretically speaking, uh, it's very, very unclear. I, I'm sorry, it's a very inadequate answer to your question, but the question's a great question. How do you get there? 
Did, did I address it appropriately, by the way, or am I missing something? Oh, no, yeah, you, you very much addressed it. Thank you very much. It's, yeah, I've been thinking about this in relation to, to Hegel. And, and also, I think uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, in Critique of Dialectical Reason, he tries to think through precisely yeah. that. But um, again, the, the answer is unsatisfactory, and the Chinese analogies are unsatisfactory. Thank you very much. I think they all are. I, I think for me, okay, just to give, just to, I don't want to belabor the point if there's other questions, but really, for me, this, the, this tension between uh, emancipation via work and emancipation by violent struggle, how does the slave really emancipate? He suggests that a slave emancipates, uh, I, and it's of course ironic through work uh, because uh, the slave only reinforces what, he, what, he, what he, he's trying to emancipate from him in the work to sort of overcome death. But um, he also seems to say this, that this, the slave's got to face death in a violent moment. And he says this in the lectures, by the way, in 19, the 1936 to 1937 lectures where he talks about terror. And he, he I think why I, 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 I want to linger on this just for a sec is uh, he's very cagey writer. And one has the sense that he is openly wants to advocate terror, uh, but is also, aware that his audience may not be so excited about that. And um, so those lectures are fascinating and they talk about, it's, it's where he talks about terror and the necessity for terror. There his methodological point is pretty clear. Uh, the, 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 the slave comes to a point where the slave is ready to emancipate itself and completes emancipation by uh, terror by overthrow of anything that is against that. Uh, it fits that almost into a Marxist mode uh, of revolutionary terror and the destruction of uh, any opposition through terror, through execution, through all those kind of things. He has uh, absolutely no concern with executing people, as you can imagine. His, you know, obviously, you're just freeing them from their illusion of uh, animality anyway. Uh, you know, that's the joke they used to make about Pol Pot, right? Is you kill all these people, and Pol Pot is saying, "Well, you're freeing them from uh, you know, from the 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 the, the torrid eternity of nature, um, or hoping to, uh, helping to educate them." Well, there's just something similar in Kojev. so it's very very important theme, and uh, it was one I'd love to work on. But so I th I think your point's very it, it's a fascinating point. I'm sorry I can't give you a better answer, but I do I suspect that Kojev probably advocates or wanted to advocate. Uh, terror openly. He was afraid to do so with his French audience. And, uh, but in the context of 1937, to talk about terror, he knew what was going on in, in Russia. It's very striking. So sorry to go on, but I hope that's a bit interesting. It was very interesting. Yeah. So now Tormod again, and then Nagina. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very sorry for this technical problem, but I will try to ask it concisely this time. So it, it's, it relates to this aspect of um, uh, the, the realistic uh, um, attempts by Kujev and others to to realize this universal state and how it relates to this like also ontological level of 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 uh, uh, reaching nirvana or these other types of, of uh, um, uh, metaphors that he uses or the other types of traditions that he alludes to but also with this figure of the sage when you discussed it uh, yeah, if, is, is, isn't the sage, what type of figure is that? Isn't that a type of individual that uh, achieves uh, some type of enlightenment? Or, or is the sage not a person or an individual, really? Is it some type of collective entity? Yeah, that was my question. 
Well, uh, again, another marvelous question, because frankly, he says the sage is the human being uh, for which there is nothing left to do. And uh, he almost, I imagine, almost a Dostoevskian character from the notes from underground sitting with folded arms. Um, and he leaves the image like that, which of course is provocative because uh, who, while alive, is left, has nothing left to do. Um, but the sage for him is the person for whom no action is relevant anymore. And to quote Dostoevsky again, and a very important character for Khrushchev is the character Kirillov from the great novel Demons. And Kirillov says, human beings will, uh, the human being will finally be free when it no longer matters to him or her whether he lives or dies. That's the sage. Uh, and the sage, the one who's come to the end of history is the one who is freed from the will to live in that way. So it almost sounds like Schopenhauer as well, but it's got a, a number of different edges to it. Okay, how can you look at a figure like that as a, in any practical formation at all? Because as he notes, uh, from the other quote I gave, the sage is going to eat, probably, unless the sage should choose to somehow uh, uh, go on a Bobby Sands diet or something like that. Um, but the sage, will, and even then, that would, that would show some, uh, too much involvement, I suppose. But the sage, um, how, if the sage does nothing, then the sage is going to die. <laughs> Simple as that. So, and if the sage does something, then the sage is not at an end. Does the sage then merely repeat endlessly? Uh, uh, and these are questions that Kozhev doesn't answer very directly. Uh, now they're crucial questions. Anyone who's acquainted with Schopenhauer knows how important a question that is. Now Schopenhauer can't give an adequate answer to it. How do you free yourself from the will to live? How does any freedom from the will to live not show <laughs> the servitude that makes you want to free yourself from it? Kozhev's fully aware of that. So the sage becomes a figure that is, I think, ironic in that way. And uh, it brings the question of just how, brings into question how seriously we can take uh, the theoretical there, so to speak, uh, as a, a guidance. Does it not even challenge the notion of theoretical wisdom or wisdom itself? As we would normally think it, because in our traditions, we might think of wisdom as being a guide for life. Is the sage a guide for life? I don't know if that's a good response to your question, well, but, I, but I mean, I think that's an initial is. way to look at it. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Thank, you. Thank you. Okay, so Agne? I would bring the discussion a bit back uh, to the previous question to sort of, I want to hear your thoughts more about like how the emancipation idea sort of relate to the historical period. Is there some relationship, like some sort of chronological relationship in his work in this? And also with other aspects of his work, for example, even with the sage, is there some sort of development through the chronological events which are happening around his moment of working that influence his work very directly? Or is this a, too big of a presumption to make? Not at, not at all. Not at all. Uh, I, 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 you know, he's very, he's very cagey about uh, about the questions of what of, of how historical context actually influence him, even though he's a historicist. But um, he, one can see a number of different currents there from uh, coming from. Uh, there's a lot that comes from his Russian tradition. Uh, there's a lot that comes uh, from uh, his his. I mean, imagine his situation. You're quite right. Here he is in the center 
For what for Russians was the center of European culture, the quintessence of European, you know, it's, it's, it's Benjamin's Hauptstadt, the uh, Welt, right, is Paris. Um, talking about the most significant, so, so to speak, final Western philosopher, uh, the philosopher who probably had more influence over Russian thought in the 19th century than, 19th century than any other. And he is coming as a Russian to, to infuse this supposed, this universal philosopher with doctrines that one can be, one can really question whether they belong to Hegel or not. So there's a, there's a whole, there's, Kojev, like Heidegger actually, loves to combine different narratives together in one thing. He and he brings them some of them from the practical situation, something from his tradition. Uh, for example, in, in, and I'll get to the more direct point. I'm sorry, I don't mean to be too wayward, but uh, there's a delight in a Russian return, the Russian coming to the capital of the uh, imperialist European world to capture it and to exert and to reread the most Europe, imperialist European philosopher you could imagine, the one who says he knows the entire course of history and read into it a distinctively Russian eschatological version of history, by the way. So there's that context as well. There is in terms of specific historical context, he talks about Napoleon a lot and his reading of Napoleon as having finished history. He knows that would be provocative, but that's not a particularly new view. And that was a view that was, uh, that was important in Russia as well. More striking, is his, is his prevarication between you talking about Napoleon as being the, uh, the, uh, I, the key catalyst to the final, to the end of history in the final state, and then turning that to Stalin. And then he'll say, as Hegel was to Napoleon, so I am to Stalin. So he becomes Stalin's philosopher, or what he called philosophy, the consciousness, uh, the articulate consciousness of Stalinism. So there is that clear political uh, context. One can never be sure with Kojev because he was such an opportunist. And, not, and I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean that in the way he was clever at, at working with different audiences. He hit the huge manuscript I mentioned that he gave to the Soviet embassy in 1941 has been referred to by one Kojev scholar as a letter to Stalin. And it's very evidently, I mean, I've read good parts of it. It's very evidently oriented to a Soviet and to, and to Stalin as a, as, as a reader, there's no question. Um, but um, overall, what you see moving in all of this is a very 19th century, by the way, I think notion of harmonizing different traditions and a very Russian notion of finding what is harmonious between different traditions of, uh, and of making in, in almost an ironic way, his own state, the state he didn't live in, because if he'd lived in it, he would have been dead. Uh, in the into uh, the the harbinger of the true end of history, so there's all that contemporary play uh, that that is at play, uh, but he's also weaving a lot of traditions together. And I think you can never ever overestimate that he's having great fun with a French audience who views Russians and Slavs in a certain way. And you should read the accounts by Aron. These others they're hysterical because they talk about his unusual accent, his, here, here was a man who spoke almost naturally, unprepared. Well, his unprepared speaking uh, comes out of 2,500, uh, I think uh, to, over almost 2,500 different notes, carefully structured from the text. But he wanted to provide his appearance of this spontaneous Slavic soul, speaking this wonderful truth. And 
and playing to the prejudices of French intellectuals, whom he completely, he had contempt for them. He thought he was much smarter than all of them. Uh, and by their accounts, he was. Of course, Raymond Aron said he was the smartest man he ever met. Smarter than Sartre. You know, that, that kind of stuff, which thrills intellectuals. It's meaningless. But So he played those, those various discourses. I'm not sure that's coming to your question. So please tell me if, if it is or not. No, I think uh, it, it gave a good context uh, to, to his ideas and these sort of points, uh, because I also feel that Russian culture of misunderstanding is a, is, a, is a topic and a theme in European sort of discourse quite a lot. And then certain people can definitely play that for, for their advantage in different points. So, I, yeah, I'm satisfied with the answer. That's what I wanted to say. Oh, well, he really did use, I mean, it's quite amusing. He, he also had all kinds of unusual re uh, relations with the emigre uh, community in, in, in France. Uh, and uh, I mean, he wasn't, I don't think he was a particular, this is, this sounds silly, but I don't think he wasn't a particularly likable person that way because he was, he loved to play and, and so on and so forth. Um, and with the emigre community, he also loved to play with their sort of nostalgia for the great Russia that was behind. And um, so if you look at the Hegel lectures, and this would take me far afield, some of this is in the book, some of it is just too complicated for the, or would require me to do another book. There's a lot of parody in there of, um, eschatological Russian discourses as well, of, of people like Fyodorov and Solovyov, he wrote, uh, there, and of eschatological thinking, period. There's playfulness with Buddha. Uh, with, if, if Buddhism is, is something that can never become a practice, really, and be honest with itself, that's not a very gen generous view of Buddhist, Buddhism, and Buddhism's, Buddhists would attack him ferociously for that. So he, he has a tendency to want to uh, uh, inhabit and parody in a lot of different discourses. So you're never quite sure where he's coming from that way. In the theoretical work, in the practical work, even there, I mean, I'll tell you an anecdote. They have a very funny anecdote because Robert Pippin uh, was a student of San Stanley Rosen. Stanley Rosen uh, knew Kozhev quite well. And um, they tell this wonderful story because there's thousands of anecdotes about Kozhev of this nature of Kozhev uh, ready to negotiate uh, in a GATT negotiation in 1966. The Germans come in with their, with their large you know, 10, 12 uh, attaches, so forth. Other uh, governments come in with their five or six attaches. Kozhev was alone. He sat there alone with three or four note cards and uh, then would proceed to use his acrobatic argumentational ability and his phenomenal memory to intimidate them all because he had a phenomenal memory. So he'd play those games. He loved to play games like that. And he liked to emphasize his own superiority uh, in a playful way, though he, he had a secretary refer to him as God and then said, but she laughs at me. And everyone goes, oh, that's so funny. Well, of course he's quoting for anyone who's knowledgeable, uh, uh, the Theotetus, where Thales looks up and the, and the uh, gracious maid or however you want to call it. So there's all kinds of playfulness like that in Koja. Sorry. Yeah. Did you throw out a question? Pardon me? I have one more question. Please. It's all right. Yeah. I I, um, I find uh, highly congenial to my own uh, preferences, let's say, the, the idea that this is really a kind of um, first, maybe second generation uh, Russian reaction to these uh, uh, romantic and idealist uh, historiographies from the 19th century. 
Um, I, I was, uh, something occurred to me apropos of, of, of this comment, which, which I'd heard before actually, and I'd forgotten how, how shocking in a sense it is that, you know, he uh, quite self, in a quite self-aware way wanted to be the, you know, to Stalin what Hegel was to Napoleon. Um, I was wondering, I get the sense um, you know, the, the character of Khrushchev's Marxism is always rather ambiguous. Uh, some people call him, you know, an ardent Marxist, which isn't really true in any, like, methodological sense. But, you know, it's, it's, it's there. And I, t I wonder whether, I don't know whether there's any of this has been pointed out uh, in Khrushchev's scholarship or anything like that. But I wonder whether um, closeness has been pointed out between Khrushchev and the 19th century German jurist Ferdinand Lassalle. Um, because it seems to me like the key Marxist premise that's abandoned, of course, is the theory of the state as class state that's abandoned in, in Khrushchev. But then at the same time, LaSalle, in order to, to contend with this, has to invent this theory of the state as like super minimal, you know, um, whereas Khrushchev seems to me picks up the germ and then slowly, you know, that just spreads and spreads in, a, in this kind of totalitarian way. And I think not to make too many, uh, you know, problematic claims in, in one supposed question, but I think there's this a relatively straight line from from LaSalle to some to some naughty 20th century phenomena. But yeah, has that has that is that something that's that there's recognition of vis-a-vis uh, -vis Kojer? Well, you know, I think that, uh, and, and by the way, uh, we I've been indulging in uh, uh, rather uh, rancid generalities all day, so please. <laughs> don't don't. Uh, uh, I think that th that's underdeveloped. I think you could look at uh, 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 Bruno Bauer. Uh, all, you, you, that whole influence uh, from uh, uh, I, I guess Bruno Bauer in particular would be interesting to draw on that German tradition. What Kozhev, whether he knew of it or or whether he uh, works on it or or, or develops it. Uh, Forbach obviously as well, though it's different. Um, I don't develop that particularly because in, in, in what I did, though, and no one has really developed that, and it should be developed, actually. Jeez, uh, sorry. Uh, I'm getting called. Um, oh, gosh. I'm sorry, I'm trying to turn it off. Um, anyhow, um, to return to this. Uh, you could say just as easily, for example, that uh, Kozhev is, is the development of someone like Bakunin and Bakunin's particular reading of Hegel, especially as regards negation and so on and so forth. Um, and how that works together with uh, the Marxian context. The problem I have with Kozhev, and I think you identified, is Kozhev is, Kozhev, uh, if you were looking at him as a, and many people have tried to I got my book got criticized by the Marxist uh, Kozhevians and said I underplayed the Marxist angle, um, and it's not really true. I just don't think the Marxist angle is. Uh, I, I don't think he's an orthodox Marxist. I think like, I think as he does with Hegel himself, he takes discourses and takes what he wants and uses what he wants, and he makes comments on them by using by by what he ignores. So um, um, as a Marxist. Uh, he's been considered Marxist of the right. What the hell does that mean? I don't know. Uh, um, other than that means think, everyone, everyone is a Marxist of the right. Right. Uh, I, I mean, he makes disparaging comments about. Uh, I don't know what he would. You know, in other words, and and look at if you're a Marxist, would you want Kozhev's utopia? 
most Marxists don't say uh, that. I mean, and he also made, he makes a, a really interesting comment in his, um, he gave a lecture on, uh, or a series of lectures on death in uh, 1934, uh, death in Hegel. And he mentions how the revolutionaries, the very ones who commit the revolution are the ones least likely to be able to live in the post-revolutionary state. And I think he, there he brings out a really crucial issue in terms of revolutionary ardor and what, revolu and, and what that means. And he explicitly approved of Stalin's execution of, because he said, you, as, a, as, the, as Stalin has to execute the old Bolsheviks, because they're the only ones who could possibly counter this kind of state he wants to create, which is a state that no revolutionary would ever want to live in. So that's a comment on Marxism too. Isn't it? Sure is. Yeah. So um, that's why you get the right-wing Kojev types who say that uh, Kojev uh, is uh, like Leo Strauss is against, is against communism, against the advent of the last man, which I think is nonsense as well. But uh, I, I can see where people uh, pick up that reading. Uh, it's not so, but I don't think that is, is fair. Uh, he just, uh, I think it's such a, it's such a telling thing to say that the very people who most have the most, to, to, are the most ready to, to revolt and free the, and, 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 and are the ones ready to uh, create the revolution are the ones who cannot live in the post-revolutionary state. And I, I know I go on, but one little comment in 68, Kojev was asked by the ever so revolutionary students in Berlin, uh, um, what he would recommend. And he said, learn Greek. Then quietly to a French, uh, one of his, I think it was Aron or somebody else who knew, he knew was conservative, but um, Aron said, do you think this is a real revolution in France in, in May of 68? He said, has anyone died? That's Kojev. Now that didn't answer your question, but I'm not sure that I think the, there is an essay that's going to be written on the Marxist angle, uh, actually very soon. But uh, I would say that I, I cannot see him as being, I wouldn't put him in, in the orthodox Marx or any, I, he doesn't fit in any clearly Marxist stream of thought that I can pick out. Though, uh, you know, does he fit in any real stream of thought is my bigger question. Or does he fit in many? Yeah, I, I was just um, reminded of LaSalle because, you know, he brought this kind of juridical Hegelianism into Marxism and is Absolutely. You know, basically the first heresy to be denounced after the fact, of course, after his death. Um, but yes. and, it, and it could be there. He never mentions him, but that doesn't mean anything. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, I always thought the resemblances between Bauer and Kozhev, I mean, Bakunin, I just don't know. He puts everything into Kozhev, into someone like Selovyov because he wants to punch Selovyov out for some reason in his own Russian. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm just, um, Sto? Yeah, now oh. it's actually six o'clock now, so, but we will wait. Yeah, yeah. But if you want, you want to. Plus, I'm, I'm not giving a lecture right now. Can I call you later? Thank you. Okay. Okay. No problem. I am so sorry. Just no, don't worry. Okay. It's actually six o'clock now. Uh, I mean, I'm sure that there are more questions, but you're all free to leave. And I guess if you if you also need to go, Jeff. Otherwise, 
I, I'm fine. I feel bad that I went on a little bit. Oh, no, no, no. It feels like it's many people left. and uh, Perhaps they went to, to, to follow Kozhev's advice. <laughs> but um, are there any other questions? Yeah, I have actually one, another one. Yeah. Okay, I'm fine. I'm, I, I, we don't eat till later. Yeah, and all of you, you know, since we, if you need to go, you can just go, of course. But anyway, so I was thinking of the many similarities with Franz Rosenschweig's The Steinberger Lösen, The Star of Redemption. Yes. So, I mean, there are so many similarities. So there it's are. work, I should just say to many of you know, of course, it's this Jewish philosopher who wrote this work uh, when he was in, in the infantry during the First World War, well, parts of it. And it begins, it's also a universal history based on the fear of death. Yes. Uh, but interesting, of course, and during, during uh, in the beginning of when he joined the First World War, he, he joined it as, as actually as a kind of um, German patriot, hoping for a middle of Europa, you know, a, a, a big, like a um, transnational Germany. And he wrote a couple of essays, um, an essay called Globus, for instance, and the Neue Levant, where he described the hope for a new transnational empire with Germany as, as its pulsating heart. And then, and he also, and especially in the essay Globus, uh, where, where he traces the, uh, well, the history of the world from a kind of Rousseauian uh, savage, which which is loses, you know, loses the, the state of nature due to private property and, and uh, the drawing of limits, you know, the, the construction of private property and states. So the universal history is this struggle against death and, and for life, a struggle of survival, which according to him um, pushes uh, states against each other. And he hopes as, as a German Jew that the, this struggle can create um, a multicultural and a multinational world uh, with, with German, still with, still with Germany uh, at its heart. Yet, of course, Germany loses the First World War and he abandons that project and publishes uh, the Star of Redemption, which instead hopes for another form of eschatological uh, completion through uh, through what he calls, calls the two paths of revelation, that is Christianity, kind of modified Christianity, and Judaism. And the interesting, and this is of course a comment also on Hegel and Hegel's idea of history and of the whole, yeah, of, of the whole idea of, of life as the struggle for survival, as a struggle for recognition, as, as this dialectic between master and slave. But interestingly, for, for Rosenschweig, in the end, uh, there is no hope in labor. Yes, we wrote a little about that about in the chat. There is no hope through work. So there is only this hope uh, through the diasporic life of, of the Jews, uh, which is a life beyond the nation. And according to him, therefore also beyond uh, the struggle for survival or since he equates history and history with the rise of states and and the struggles between states. So the diasporic life of the Jews becomes this idea of, of um, a struggle for, uh, beyond the struggle for survival. And to make this long comment short, you know, to end this long comment, is for him, 
So for him, the whole idea of, of what he calls eternal life, which is incarnated in the diasporic life of Jews, uh, and which is strived for by Christianity by being a religion that that uh, trans that transgresses every border, is a life that is he he says strangely enigmatically in the end of the book he says that God is not life, God is beyond life and death, and he says that pagan gods can only live, whereas um, the modern man can only think of God as dead. But in the end, the God of Revelation is, is beyond the two-dimensionality of death and, uh, death and life. And whatever that means is, of course, very, very enigmatic. But he ends, so for him, he ends with this idea, which is very similar because for, to Koshev, because for him, it's also the one who is, who is ready to die, points out the martyr. The martyr for him is, is the ideal man, in a sense, the one who's ready to, to die. But not because death is the only uh, opposite to this drive for life, for this struggle for survival, but because he thinks that there is this state beyond death and life. And as of course, you know, the crucial difference is, of course, that Rosenzweig was a theologian, a, a religious, a religious person. But still, it's so fascinating. So I, with the similarities, are so many. So I wonder if. If he ever commented Rosenschweig, or if he could have read him, I mean, there, there, are, there are at least many influences that are common. Like, both had Rickert as teachers, both That's common right. near Kantians, and you have, of course, Schelling, and yeah, just some comment, a long comment. No, but I mean, I, I think that it, it's it, it's very interesting. Of course, it was a very small community of people. I mean, Leo Strauss knew Rosenschweig quite well. Uh, Strauss knew Kozhev. I mean, Kozhev doesn't make um, uh, any direct allusion to Rosenzweig. Um, but I mean, the idea you're talking about, though, it, it really, it's very powerful in the uh, esoteric Jewish tradition anyway. Uh, the, the notion of uh, this uh, God being actually even more radical notion that God can, is, is both uh, good and evil and beyond good and evil. Uh, certainly that's very, very powerful in the Zoharic tradition and uh, uh, so Rosenzweig, there's a long, I think, and, and quite, um, uh, I mean, that's, they'll call that Kabbalistic uh, or, or having to do with the, the tradition of the Kabbalah. Uh, but I think that uh, it, it, there is an element of that in, in what Rosenzweig is, is talking about that I don't think you would find in Kozhev because Kozhev recognizes and uh, he's not anti-Semitic in any way, and there's no there's no anti uh, anti-Semitic bias in Kozhev or anything of that nature. But Kozhev recognizes uh, what well, Kozhev is very clear about the radicality of Christianity is to create a human God, which Judaism does not do, and Islam does not do. And of course, as you know, Kozhev had a very strong interest in Islam. He was good. For, he he, Corbin admired him a great deal. And he learned a lot from Henri Corbin, who was a great Islamicist uh, and was very interested in that, that world. But in terms of uh, his specifically, the, the Christian notion where it's it, interesting is I, I, I see in your comment talking about this, uh, an element of, of self-abnegation. Uh, and it's really interesting to ask whether Kozhev is suggesting self it, it, where, where he ends up as a comment on the Christian notion of becoming God, 
which is just which obviously what no other religion has that that he knew that was the radicality of Christianity is this notion of becoming God, and so where it's interesting what you said, Morton, is does 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 Kozhev end up coming back to a traditional position against does he does he in fact in in pretending to explore the radicality of that Christian position does he undermine it? In other words, does he and therefore does he not undermine? He said he said that Salaviov was too conservative. And but he doesn't talk about Fyodorov ever. But it's clear to me that, or it's reasonably clear that the emphasis on this notion of more self-abnegation or self-extirpation, if you like, is has nothing to do with that tradition in in, in Russia and that and especially as it comes through Fyodorov, and is an explicit or an implicit comment on uh, on that tradition because uh, a finite God uh, also is a finite God, any kind of God. When he finally says that the, the Christianity, and people get, get this mixed up all the time, uh, say, well, uh, he was an atheist, but he, talked, but he talks about Christianity so much. And as he said, the end of Christianity, it's a very Hegelian motif, the end of Christianity is atheism. You know, is, is a man becoming God is atheism. Or human being becoming God is atheism. So, uh, but Kozhev, what does that turn into in Kozhev? What is a finite God? If the finite God is the sage, what does that mean? So maybe he does agree, but there's none of the pathos I find that you find in, in Rosenzweig, I think. But I could be wrong, Morton. Rosenzweig is oh, yeah. such a fascinating, I mean, the first, yeah, from Tod, the first line. Understand <laughs> uh, and so there's an element of that that they're both so and, and again there's the I, I wonder if there's with Rosenzweig it's much more difficult but there's definitely in Kozhev there's the strong uh, dialogue with Heidegger thank you okay anyhow sorry that was your comment was lovely and my answer what if there was an answer or a comment was more or less like drifting across the seas. No, 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 no. It was great. I mean, because I have a comment actually on the comment, but perhaps <laughs> anyone else want to say something? Uh, I actually have a, a quick uh, question. Uh, I was actually curious um, that, that you seem to downplay uh, the question of, of Slovyov, uh, which, which for me is, is, a, is actually an interesting one. Um, Vis-a-vis, in particular, this book of his, uh, The Meaning of Love, uh, which is where he essentially outlines um, this this kind of uh, orthodox slash platonic uh, reading of Hegel, and and it is um, I had always understood uh, essentially where uh, Kozhev is meant to get his idea of end of history, um, and here of course it is that humanity uh, is, is united uh, through a concept of love, uh, and where love is love for the love of the other, uh, and they're, they're mediated by the universality of the divine Sophia. Um, because also it, it, it's Orthodox uh, Christianity and not not obviously Catholicism, where where the relationship to God can be universalized potentially, yes. uh, and that therefore um, his own theory of the state was the secularization of Slovyov, whereby uh, divine love becomes uh, recognition by the state. W- w- this was, um, uh, I think, uh, uh, Boris Gors a bit that takes this this line uh, mm-hmm. for better or worse. But so I was just curious. Um, it, where here it seemed like you, you were very uh, resistant to, to, to Slovyov being a, uh, a, a source here. 
Uh, no, in fact, I, uh, I'm sorry if I gave that impression and I probably did. Uh, it's a great question, by the way. I would say that uh, uh, for Kozhev is the one who, who shows a pronounced uh, and a very ambiguous relation with Solovyov. Um, and uh, he likes to, uh, it, I'm not quite clear why he is so critical of Solovyov. He, in his uh, dissertation, he's quite critical. He's even more critical in the short, uh, he did a French uh, summary, more or less, of his dissertation that he published in 1933 and 34, which is very interesting reading on the religious flight and worth reading. Um, there he, 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 aside from doing, I, I think, things that I don't find very interesting from a scholarly perspective. In other words, he says that uh, Selaviov is too dominated by Schelling, is too derivative of Schelling. Uh, another person might uh, uh, say that the, you know, Schelling, Selaviov uh, uh, is more Hegelian, blah, blah, blah. I'll leave that uh, aside. The real problem he seems to have with Selaviov, and it's a very interesting one, is that is what they call the problem of the two absolutes in Selaviov. In other words, that, uh, even though uh, you, you humanity, you have the God, you know, this notion of the God man, the Bogachelovyuk, uh, uh, there's still God. So there's always a secondary status for us. We do not become God, or we become God only metaphorically in, in, in the sense of following and working within a religious community that in a tra traditional religious community, I mean, um, uh, with love, just as you said, and Grois does mention that essay, um, and, and that is a model that uh, he says is not radical enough. So uh, why your question is so perfect for what we talked about today is, does he not, and I think you're probably alluding to this, does he not end up doing something similar with, but he eradicates love, by the way, but does he not, you know, is, is this universal and homogeneous state not in a sense a capitulation to the same perspective that Salaviov has, um, shaved of, uh, of all the talk of love and so forth, which, uh, uh, for, you know, Khrushchev never talks of love in that way. Um, so uh, I, it's an interesting, it's a really, really interesting way of looking at Khrushchev insofar as he, he very pointedly criticizes Salaviov for retaining a separation between God and humanity, even in the term of the, uh, what they call the divine human or however they want to translate uh, the Russian. Um, which is, by the way, for everyone, is Bogotchelovyak, just means the God, uh, it's like saying Teos Anthropos, the God, uh, the God, uh, man, uh, human, not man. Anyhow, um, whether uh, he says Xelovio doesn't take it as far as he should, it's not, he's not a radical, he, he, in fact, betrays the truest Christian spirit by not having us become God, and therefore eliminating the idea of God, such that um, will have no more meaning. Uh, and yet in the universal homogeneous state, does he not create the very thing he said uh, was inappropriate? I think that's a completely, that's a very interesting perspective and one worthy of exploring. So thank you for bringing that up. I, I, I didn't mean to, I, Kozhev is the one who, if we were all listening to Harold Bloom, God bless his soul, we would say it's an anxiety of influence. <laughs> which is a silly concept, but I suppose. But uh, I, I'm not quite sure why uh, Kozhev decided to take on Salaviov in that particular way. And it's certainly ironic that he seems to uh, <laughs> do something that's very Salaviovian in his, uh, in his second career. And that's not a great answer, but I, I, don't, I certainly did not mean 
Cooper to suggest. No, no, that's a very, very, very good answer. Uh, thank you. Uh, okay. So, sorry, I do go on. Any other questions? All right. Well, I mean, thank you all for having me. Yeah, thank you for coming. Well, it was delightful. Thank and, you very much. Uh, yeah. I hope we will continue the conversation. And I will. I, I have looked up your group, and I will. Uh, maybe I'll participate and be on the other side where I can ask questions if I'm. Yeah, coming. yeah. Oh, this was really great. Um, well, I have actually you. many more questions, but I think it's getting late. So. Well, for you guys, it's just five fifteen for us. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you all for coming. And, Thank you. Uh, Check out our site now and then because we will organize. Yeah. Well, and thank you for all the, the, the excellent questions. Really interesting. And thank you very much. Thank you. And uh, good night. <laughs>